And this is why we're saying the idea of God being a trinity is totally incompatible on a practical level. If we are logical and we follow what we believe logically to its conclusion, it is totally incompatible with the idea of righteousness by faith, which is the essence of the gospel. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour, and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. I want to look at some practical ramifications of what we are uh, talking about so far. And we're going to talk about righteousness by faith and the Trinity, or in particular righteousness by faith versus the Trinity, in that the correct understanding of God and who He is, particularly when we understand that Christ is the only begotten Son, uh, we need to understand what that means on a practical level when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about righteousness by faith, how we are made right with God, how we can obtain righteousness, and all these wonderful promises of the scripture. Our concept and our understanding of God is going to directly affect and impact our understanding of all these things because they are all related. And so I want to take this to the next level and just look at what we're talking about on a practical level. And this is re the real test of what we, uh, what we profess, whatever that might be. And in looking at righteousness by faith, we just want to look at the promise that Jesus made to his disciples before he left. We, know, we read about it in John 16 and verse 7. This is what he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Very significant point Jesus was here making. In order for the Comforter, which we know, of course, is the Holy Spirit. In order for the Holy Spirit to come, Christ had to go away. He had to depart. He actually told them it's expedient for you to go away. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this verse, but what is the reason? that Christ had to go away before the Comforter could come. So long as Christ was with his disciples on earth, according to what he's saying here, this Comforter would not come. Now, they were sad when they heard that. They were, they were happy with Jesus being there. But he says, listen, it's expedient for you. It's, it's necess necessary for you. It's for your own good that I actually go away. Because when I go away, only then can I send the Comforter. But if I don't go away, I will not be able to send this Comforter. And the question we want to ask is, why? Is this so? Yes, we have a comment. Because he had to die on the cross for our sins. Because he had to die on the cross for our sins, correct. But that's not the only reason. We're going to see exactly how the scripture spells it out. But that's true. That's a part of it. This indicates also something very important from this verse straight away. That the Comforter or the Holy Spirit could not be anyone other than Christ. Because Christ himself had to go. If it was someone else, Christ could have easily said, Come, come down, or go. But something had to happen to Christ himself. He had to go away. And in his going away is the, is the link with the sending of the Comforter. So long as he remained on earth, he would not be able to send this Comforter. So this is what I want to explore a little bit. What is the link between the departure of Christ and the sending of the Spirit or the Comforter? Now I want to ask you another question. Just based on this verse, and what we're doing, we're just, we're just looking at what the verse is telling us, right? And, and just asking questions and hoping to find answers, either in the verse itself or elsewhere. When Christ gave these words, was the comforter with the disciples at that time, yes or no? Yes. Okay, we have some yes, we have some no. That's great. I love that because it means we have different ideas, different 
We were thinking differently. It's good. This means we're all thinking. Jesus says, unless he went away, the comforter will not come unto you. It means the comforter was not there yet. And we're going to see what we're talking about in a minute. Uh, and we'll explore that together. What Christ was referring to here is something that would yet come still in the future. It wasn't there yet. And for in order for that to come, in order for this comforter to come, Christ himself had to go away. So I want us to keep this link in mind, and we want to see why. The scripture tells us why. John chapter 7 gives us the answer. John chapter 7, verses 38 and 39. Very powerful and beautiful verse. It says here, Jesus speaking, He that believeth on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 38, 39. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. So here's the answer. Here the apostle is writing and recording this interesting event. Jesus got up at the end of the feast, on the last great day of the feast, and he makes this promise. He says, if you believe on me, you will have rivers of living water flow out of you. Then he says, he says what Jesus was talking about here was the Spirit. And by the way, this spirit that he's talking about here was not yet given when he spoke these words because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the reason why the spirit was not yet given is that Jesus was not yet glorified. In other words, when Jesus told his disciples, unless I depart, he was referring to his glorification. So unless I depart and be glorified, only then can I send you the comforter but if i don't go he will not come or he will not be sent you with me so far so the departure of christ is not just that he had to go he had to go away and be glorified we want to see what that means and why that is linked with the coming or the sending of the comforter but before we go too far i want to establish something here because i asked a question you know, was the comforter there at the time? And we know the comforter is the spirit. And some people said, well, yes, because perhaps you're thinking, well, the spirit was always there during the Old Testament time. And that is true. There is no question about that. David is a good example of that. We read this verse earlier. Psalm 51, 11, he says, cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy holy spirit from me. So the Holy Spirit was working there in the days of David. David did not want to lose it. As a matter of fact, we see it all the way at the very beginning, the very first chapter in the book of Genesis, where it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God, you know, manifested His Spirit in a number of ways, a number of means throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. So then what in the world is Jesus talking about when He says, I'm going to send you this comforter, and He, he cannot come until I go away and be glorified. What is He talking about if the Spirit was already there all the time? What is John talking about when he says this spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified? You see the point here? It seems like a contradiction, right? It's not a contradiction. It's something different that is coming. Something about the spirit that is going to change. It's going to be so different that in comparison, what was there before is said to have been like it was not yet given. So again, I want to see what that means. You see, during the patriarchal age, during the Old Testament time, uh, all this period before the cross, the influence of the Spirit was often revealed and manifested in very marked manners, but never in its fullness. 
Did you catch that? I don't want you to miss that. Never in its fullness. Christ was talking about the sending of the Spirit, or the called now the Comforter, which is the fullness of it. That's what the, the fuller part is. Called the Comforter. He says there's something coming, and this is coming. It's going to be a fuller measure, something that has never been seen before. But in order for that to come to you, I myself have to go away, and I have to be glorified. Something had to happen to the person of Christ himself before this fuller outpouring of the Spirit could be given, which tells us straight away, that the spirit is linked to the very person of Christ. It cannot be anyone other than him or any person outside of him or besides him. You with me so far? Okay, good. Uh, you don't have to agree. I just want to make sure you understand. That's that's my main that's my main objective. So I want to make sure that that happens. So Christ had to be go had to go and be glorified. It helps us to understand what Jesus meant when we understand some of the definitions and meanings in the scripture for spirit. In John 6, 63, we find one such important definition. Jesus said, It is the spirit that quickeneth the flesh, profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Very, very important verse. According to Jesus, what is the definition of spirit here? Spirit means life. He says, my words are spirit, my words are life. So life and spirit are equivalent, they're the same thing. They are what his words are. In other words, the words of Jesus are not simply ink on paper, even if it's printed in red in the Bible. That is the written form of what Jesus said. But Jesus is telling them, telling them and us, listen, my words have are, are, are on a totally different level. My words are actually living. They are spirit, they are life. The living word of Christ. The Bible is simply the written form of what Jesus said. You with me? There is another level. There is a spiritual component that actually gives life, that imparts life in the words of Christ. And so spirit means life. We want to keep that in mind as well. And because the spirit is life, that's why it gives life. Let's look at this other verse in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Who is the last Adam? Christ. And it says here, he was made a quickening spirit. Now, what does the word quickening mean? Life-giving. This is an old English word that means life-giving. The Bible says that God shall judge the quick and the dead. Are you familiar with that verse? That's the living and the dead. Quick is not the fast or those who run quickly. It's the living and the dead. It's just the old... Uh, English way of expressing it. So Christ here, the last Adam, was made a spirit that gives life. A life-giving spirit. And Jesus indicated that his words are spirit and his words are life. Now keep that in mind because Jesus was talking about the sending of the spirit. In other words, he's talking about the sending of what? Of life. A kind of life that could only be sent, called the Comforter, this life could only be sent if Jesus himself went away and was glorified. You with me so far? You see the link. So the sending of the Spirit is not necessarily talking about the sending of another individual or another person. It's the sending of a life, a fuller and more complete outpouring of a life. And of course, it has to do with Christ himself. Something that is referred to as the comforter. Romans 8.10 tells us the same thing again. And if Christ 
be in you. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So it says here, when who is in us? When Christ is in us? That's the same way, that's the same thing as the spirit of life being in us. So when we talk about the spirit, when Jesus is talking about his words being spirit and being life, when Jesus is talking about the sending of the comforter, which is life, whose life are we talking about here? It is the very life of Christ himself. That's why he himself had to go and he himself had to be glorified before that fuller and greater outpouring of that life could be given to his disciples. Are you with me so far? And John was saying in John chapter 7, he says, this spirit, what Jesus is talking about, this full abundance of the outpouring of the spirit, which is like rivers of living water. It's not a lake, it's not a creek, it's not a dam. It's actually not even one river. It is rivers. It's a picture that Jesus is trying to use to convey an overabundant outpouring. He's saying what he's talking about there is this spirit or this life. This life could not yet be given because Jesus himself was not yet glorified. The life that Christ had he had to go to heaven and he had to be glorified before he could impart that fuller one to us and i want to explore again like i said the practical ramifications for that this was on christ's mind when he was leaving he prayed to his father in john 17 5 and now O father glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which i had with thee before the world was what's christ asking for glorification because he knows that in the glorification, there is also going to be now the point where he can impart this comforter or send this comforter. Without him being glorified, he cannot send it. So he's not asking for glory for himself. This is not a selfish request. He's asking this on the behalf of the disciples because in him being glorified, that's where he can send the comforter and not before. And we see that because he anticipates the answer of his father in the prayer. In verse 22, he says, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. And so this glorification that he receives, he receives to share. And what he shares is this comforter, or he refers to it here as this glory. He shares this glory. He shares this blessing that he receives from his Father. And so Christ had that uppermost on his mind. That's why when he was leaving his disciples, he told them, listen, I need to go away. This is the part of the plan of salvation where I need to go away because if I don't go away, the next phase, the next part, you cannot receive. I'm talking about the comforter here. I need to go away and be glorified. They were very sad when they heard that. But Christ was trying to encourage them. He says, what's coming is exactly what I want for you. It's greater than what I have for you right now. He says, that's why he says it's expedient. It's necessary. It's for your own benefit, for your own good that I actually leave you and go away. This is how important this is. And so the reason why I'm emphasizing it is because as you see it, it's a tenor, it's a theme, particularly in the closing days or the closing period of Christ's ministry. This was the burden that was on his heart, the sending of the comforter. That's why he prayed about, that's why he asked for when he was asking and praying here to his father. And so all we have to do is we see this, these parallels between this promise of the spirit and between the glorification of Christ. So as soon as Christ is glorified, immediately he would send the comforter. The two are linked. The glorification of Christ and the sending of the comforter are linked, or the sending of the Spirit. And we saw that the Spirit is really none other than the life, and particularly it is the life of Christ. Let me put a few things here to you, because when Christ came here and lived on earth, it was the very first time ever in the history of 
the universe where you had a divine being who also became fully human. Isn't that right? Never happened before. All the people that had lived on earth before were only human. For the first time you had the Son of God come down from heaven. He's a divine being. We saw he was begotten of the Father before anything was created. He inherited the divine nature of his Father. Now he comes to be born as a man and he unites with his divine nature. He unites the nature of man for the very first time ever. And as a man, he lives a life that has never ever been lived before on earth. He lives a life where he overcomes every single sin that Satan threw at him. He overcame sin and Satan. The Bible actually says that he condemned sin in the flesh. Had anyone ever done that before? No. So this brand new life, this brand new experience, day in and day out, Christ meeting with temptation. And he wasn't just, he didn't just meet with temptation when he was in the wilderness. He was meeting with temptation day in and day out. And he is overcoming time after time. And he is gaining these victories and he's gaining this experience and he's gaining all these things that are for whose benefit? For us, right? And here he comes at the end of his life. He has, he's about to finally defeat Satan for the last time and the ultimate time on the cross. He's about to die. He has lived this successful life with zero sins committed. And he's telling his disciples, listen, I need to go away. Something has to happen to me. Something has to happen to this life that I've lived for you in order that I can give this life enriched with all these experiences that I have accomplished now for you. I need to go and be glorified. My father needs to approve and accept this. Then I'm going to give to you this life or this comforter. And in giving us this life and giving us this comforter now, this life comes to us not like it was in the Old Testament because then it was the Holy Spirit of God, which is the power of God working. But now it comes to us enriched with the human experience that Christ accomplished on earth. You with me? This is what he was talking about. And so he, he, had, he lived this human experience on earth. He died, he rose, but he needed to take this life, go to heaven and be glorified by the Father. And then he was going to share with us that life. So now that life or that spirit is called the comforter. It's the divine human life of the Son. You see the difference here. And all this could not happen except he went away and was glorified. Like he said. It was, in essence, like a brand new person. When Christ came as a man, it was like a brand new person. It was a divine human life that lived. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the, the, the powerhouse of the gospel. This is when we talk about righteousness by faith, when we talk about victory over sin, when we talk about how we are restored into the image of God. We only can have all these things if we have the life that Christ accomplished all these things in. Christ is the only one who ever lived a perfectly righteous life. That is, there is only one life in the universe, as far as the sin is concerned, in, in, on earth, let's put it that way. There's only one life that is acceptable in God's eyes. You know whose life that is? It's the life of the Son. And so Christ was leaving and he's saying, listen to his disciples, I need to go because now I've earned this for you. I've accomplished this for you and I'm going to go and I'm going to give you this. It's called the comforter. This is why the idea that the Holy Spirit is a person besides Christ 
totally destroys and rips apart this beautiful picture that Christ is portraying here. Christ was earnest to go to his father. This is what he, what he was referring to here after his resurrection in John 20, verse 17. Mary was looking for him. So he appears to her, he comforts her, and then says here, Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren, and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father, and to my God and your God. And this verse has thrown people off a little bit. But you remember, when, what time period was this verse? Resurrection morning, right? Sunday morning? This is what happened. He appears to Mary. And then he says to Mary, don't touch me. And some people have said, well, you know, she couldn't touch him. He wasn't referring to touch me just like that. There wasn't anything wrong with touching Christ. If you look at some other translations, it brings out the meaning a little better. And you might have it in your Bible. It says, do not cling to me or do not detain me. In other words, saying, Mary, now that I've appeared to you, I've comforted you, I'm alive, I'm well. Don't hold on to me yet. Don't delay me. I'm going somewhere. I need to go to my father. Because when he went, and of course he did, uh, you know, when he came back, the other disciples touched him and other gospel accounts showed that he was touched. There was nothing wrong or taboo about touching Christ. That's sometimes, uh, that's what people think. That's not what this verse is talking about. He was in earnest in going somewhere. He was going to go to his father because he's just been resurrected with this life where he has defeated sin and Satan completely. A perfectly righteous human life that is also now, because he's a divine being, is also divine life. But a, a perfectly righteous human life is now in existence for the first time in the history of mankind. That's why he's called the last Adam. We cannot miss this point. And he's about to take this life to heaven to get the ultimate approval from God the Father. If this is acceptable to the standard of God's righteousness, then he would be able to do something fantastic with that life. God's going to indicate that by glorifying his son as a human. And then he would be able to send this comforter or this spirit, which would be a totally complete manifestation and outpouring of the spirit that had never been seen before. And so he did go to his father that day, just as he said he would to Mary. And he returned to earth. And when he returned to earth, we find the record here in John chapter 20 and verse 19 to 21. Then the same day at evening. So what day is this? First day of the week. Resurrection day. In the morning, he had this conversation with Mary. And the same day in the evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And we had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus unto them, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. So in the interim, between the morning and the evening, Christ went up to his Father and came back the very same evening. And then he says, As the Father hath sent me, so send I you. And then he does something very interesting. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. See what's happening here. What Christ was doing, he was giving them this promise. But this was not the full, complete fulfillment of the promise. This was actually as a sample of what was to come. Because at this point, even though Christ had gone to the Father and come back the same day, he was not yet 
glorified. We will see that in a minute. But he was giving them here a sample. In other words, this is a parallel picture, brothers and sisters, of when Christ did the same thing all the way back there in the Garden of Eden to Adam. So when Christ created Adam, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That was the spirit of life. Adam, through sin, lost that. Now Christ comes as the second Adam. He accomplishes the victory over sin and Satan. And now he's about to breathe into the human race a new life. This is what this is symbolizing. This new life is called the Holy Spirit. It's his very own life. That's why he came to give it to us. But like I said, he was not yet glorified because this is not the full outpouring yet. This was as a sample of what was to come. It was a representation of what was to follow. We know that because in Luke 24, 49, it says the following. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. If you read it in context, you'll find that when Christ was with his disciples in the upper room there on the first day of the week, he spent, how long did he spend with his disciples? He stayed on earth after his resurrection for 40 days, correct? And so in Luke, this is recording what's happening on day number 40. So he spends 40 days with his disciples. He instructs them about the things concerning the kingdom of God and so on. And he's about to leave. And as he is leaving now, he is telling them, listen, you need to wait in Jerusalem because I'm about to send to you the promise of my father. This promise of my father is the outpouring of the spirit that he was talking about. In other words, he was on his way now to heaven to now be officially glorified in order to send this promise of the father. And so they had to wait in Jerusalem. Luke records the same thing. Oh, sorry, let's, let's keep reading and just to get the, the timing of the context here. And he led them out as far as to Bethany and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. So this was day number 40 from the resurrection morning. He's taken into heaven. In the book of Acts, we have the parallel account. And that gives us a little bit more information. Acts 1, 3, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days Hence, so here's the promise of the Father. It's said to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You see, the baptism of the Holy Spirit could not take place until Christ went to heaven and was glorified. Until this life that he lived in humanity was taken to heaven and accepted by the Father. A human, perfect, righteous life. The life of the Son. And when that was accepted and approved by the Father, then he would send it. And he's telling them, listen, don't, don't do anything. Don't go anywhere. Just wait in Jerusalem. I'm going to give you something that's going to enable you to preach the gospel with power. Don't even bother trying until I go and send you this promise. It's coming. Wait for it. It's going to come in a few days. That's why it says not many days hence. They will receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they would come into a union with Christ that was not experienced before. That's what the Spirit, that's what the promise of the Spirit is all about. You see, brothers and sisters, if we really understand, comprehend what Christ was meaning here, yeah, 
it's, it, it should totally transform us completely. If we really realize what Christ was going to give them and us, because the promise is not just for them, as we shall see. It is the very life of the Son, the glorified, resurrected, victorious life of the Son. It's a life that Satan could not overcome with any of his temptations. This is what he is going to give to his disciples and to us. Now, he has given it, as we shall see, because the Father has accepted this life. And we find that the glorification of Christ is actually recorded in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Now, notice carefully, again, we're going to analyze these verses carefully. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. God here is speaking to his Son. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Here's this interesting event, this interesting occurrence in heaven where the father anoints his son with the oil of gladness. What does that signify? What's the oil symbol of usually in scripture? You know, it's a symbol of the spirit. Many times in the Old Testament, the kings were anointed with oil before they could commence their rule. This is the indication of the start of their reign. A prophet would go and he would anoint the king with oil. In other words, God would lead and guide this particular uh, king in his rule. At least that was what uh, that symbol signified. Not every king, of course, necessarily did that. But here we see Christ is anointed with this oil of gladness by the Father. Now, what is the reason why he is anointed with this oil of gladness? It says it in the verse. The reason is because he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. So here's another question. When did Christ demonstrate a love for righteousness and a hatred for iniquity? When he lived his life as a man, where he met with, day in and day out, he met with temptation, with sin, with iniquity. And time after time, he demonstrated his choice and his love for righteousness and his hatred for iniquity. Isn't that right? Was Christ ever tempted before he became a man? No, God cannot be tempted, the Bible says, but Christ is the express image of God. In order for Christ to actually experience temptation, that's why he had to take on humanity. That's why he had to become a man. Because it was man that the devil had defeated. And so to defeat the devil, it had to be a man who would beat him back. And so Christ came as a man in our place, as the last Adam. And in our existence and in our place, he met with Satan and with sin and with temptation. And he defeated it. And he loved righteousness and hated iniquity day in and day out until he died. And he died and he took that life, this glorious, beautiful life, where he accomplished victory over sin and Satan. He took it to heaven. And in heaven, now the father tells him, my son, because you've done this, because you've accomplished that, you've loved righteousness and hated iniquity, I'm now going to anoint you with this oil of gladness. You know what this is talking about? This is the glorification of Christ. This is when he was glorified as a man. His life was accepted by the father. His experience on earth was accepted and approved by the Father as valid and as righteous. And so you know what the first thing that Christ does as soon as he's glorified? Is he fulfills the promise that he gave to his disciples. Remember we said the glorification of Christ and the sending of the Spirit are linked. As soon as he's glorified, he said he would send this Spirit called the Comforter. 
And so as soon as this took place in heaven, something very miraculous and amazing took place on earth. And we know it as the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Notice what it says here. Peter preaching, verse 32. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has shed forth this which he now see and hear. And so the day of Pentecost is what happened on earth. But as that was happening on earth, what had just happened in heaven was that Christ was glorified by his Father. He received this promise of the Spirit when the Father anointed him with the oil of gladness. He received the promise of the Spirit and he immediately poured out this Spirit on his disciples on earth. That was his life in a fuller, richer measure that had never been witnessed before because now Christ has just lived it, taken it to heaven, and it's been glorified. And the disciples understood and realized that. A little later, notice what it says in Acts 3.13. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom he delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. And so Christ manifested what happened on the day of Pentecost. It was his work. He was shedding forth what was happening. And it was because he had just been glorified in heaven. The two are very intimately linked together. You see, it's kind of like the, the example of that and the significance of that is uh, in the Old Testament, remember when, like we said, the kings were anointed, but not only the kings. God had told Moses to anoint his brother Aaron as a high priest. Do you remember that? To function and operate and work in the sanctuary, the earthly sanctuary. When Christ went to heaven as a man, and when he was anointed with the oil of gladness, that's when he was glorified. But that anointing is also actually his inauguration ceremony to function as the high priest of his people in the heavenly sanctuary. That's what that type on earth was of. Aaron could not work in the, in the, in the temple or in the sanctuary as a priest until he was anointed by Moses with this oil that God had given. This was a type. It was an example. Christ began his high priestly ministry and his high priestly work after he went to heaven as a man and he was anointed and glorified by God. And the first thing that he does as the high priest of his people is now he can minister or pour out his very life, the life that he lived while he was here on earth. So now the Holy Spirit is not just the power of God now it is enriched with the added life experience that Christ accomplished while he was here on earth. This is what the ministration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary is all about today, which we are told is everything to us as a people. The book of Hebrews talks about that extensively. And so that's, uh, that's what's referred to. <clears throat> Philippians 2, 8 and 9 says the same thing. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Christ is now exalted as a man. He is glorified as a man. He is anointed as a man. He is the last Adam. That's why now we can receive something because he is one of us. And that's why the scripture says this spirit that Christ was talking about was not yet given because Christ was not yet glorified. Now he is glorified and now he is exalted. And that's a fulfillment 
of his promise that the glory which thou hast given me, I have given them. And so this is what the spirit is all about. <clears throat> Another thing in the, in the scriptures is when, when God anointed, uh, sorry, when, when God told Moses to anoint Aaron, we're told he anointed Aaron with oil and the oil flowed down on his beard and down to the bottom of his garments. You can read about that in Psalms uh, 133. And uh, that's another indication. That's another type as well. The oil was in abundance, right? He didn't just put a few drops and that's it. Uh, the, the oil being flowing down means there was a lot of oil used. You know, maybe a whole cup of oil poured on his head and it goes down all the way to, to, to the bottom of his garments. Why is that? That's also a type. That's a, that's a symbol. Christ, when he was anointed with the oil of gladness, he is the head of the church. The church is his body. As soon as he was anointed in heaven, that life or that oil, that spirit, flowed down from Christ all the way down to his body. The rest of his body was on earth, his waiting disciples. In other words now, Christ and his followers share the same life. The life of the Son flows into his believers. You with me? This is what the Spirit, sorry, this is what the Scripture refers to as the Holy Spirit or the Comforter. This life now can comfort us or can help us in our battle with sin and Satan. We don't have to battle sin and Satan on our own. We have now a life that has already defeated sin and Satan. It's a totally different approach to how we deal with the enemy. This is how we can receive righteousness because we receive this righteous life of the Son. And how we receive it, of course, is by faith. Notice what it says here, John 1, 12. But as many as received him, that's Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Receiving Christ is to receive him in the life. That's how we can become the sons of God, by believing on his name. This is why we're saying it is by faith, by truly Believing and trusting in that what he has accomplished and accepting that as our own personally. This is how we receive the life of the son. This is how we are adopted into the family of God. Why else do you think God calls us sons and daughters? Because we have the very life of his son. So he treats us as he treats his son. The only way is, of course, through that life. Galatians 4, 6 says, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God the Father now can legitimately extend the life of His Son to all those who believe on Him. This life of His Son is called the Spirit of His Son. That's how we are adopted. So Christ's Father becomes our Father. That's what the last Adam is all about, brothers and sisters. That's why in the Scriptures... Christ is also referred to in the, in the prophecy of, of Isaiah 9, 6. He's referred to as the everlasting Father. You familiar with that verse? It says, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, uh, the Prince of Peace, and the everlasting Father. And that verse has thrown a lot of people off. They say, oh, well, see, Jesus is the Father, and this maybe has to do with the Trinity. This has nothing to do with the Trinity. That verse is a, is a prophecy about the Messiah's work as a man. He is the last Adam, and as the last Adam, he is a father of a brand new race of human beings. It's a race that possesses his divine human life. You see, the life of the first Adam is a dying life. We receive that in our first birth. When we are born again, we receive a new life. It's the life of the last Adam. 
It's the Spirit. That's why He becomes our everlasting Father. That's what that's talking about. It's talking about Him as the last Adam. And in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, it says, But he that is joined unto the Lord is one Spirit. What's another word for Spirit? Life. When we're joined with Christ, brothers and sisters, we partake of His life. This is not just some theory. This is not just a cliche we say. We actually receive the life that He lived on earth. We receive His victories. We receive His righteousness that He accomplished. This is called righteousness by faith because we don't receive this through keeping the commandments. We don't receive this through doing anything. We receive this if we truly receive Him and believe in Him. It's by faith. That's why it's called righteousness by faith. It's the only righteous life that God actually accepts. This is a very, very powerful verse. That's what, that, that's what eternal life is all about. That's what the Holy Spirit is. That's why misunderstanding, that's why the devil has, has caused confusion over particularly the identity of the Holy Spirit. Because when you misunderstand, when you think the Spirit is a person besides the Father and the Son, all of this doesn't make any sense does not make any sense. You see, brothers and sisters, Christ lived on earth as a man, right? For 33 years. He gained this rich, precious experience on our behalf. And then a lot of people believe he went away to heaven. And then he sends us someone else to help us to overcome sin here on earth. Someone who has never been tempted. Someone who never took on humanity. Someone who never defeated Satan. You realize the problem that exists there? It makes the whole mission of Christ really totally useless the very experience the life that i want is the life that christ lived so he leaves me and sends me someone else why, why would he do that why didn't he send someone else to begin with you see that the idea that separates the spirit from christ and makes it someone else totally destroys and warps what we're talking about when it comes to righteousness by faith it, it leaves us all on our own christ has abandoned us and sent us someone else and people say well you know christ tells the spirit what to tell us you know, and, and that's how he helps us. No, 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 brothers and sisters. That's not what the scripture says. Only the son can make you free. He that hath the son hath life. That's the only way you have life. He doesn't send a representative. He doesn't send a helper. He himself is the only one qualified to give us this life. He's the only one that can make us righteous. He doesn't make us righteous by saying, here, you try and obey me and I will help you. He says, no, this is totally unaccepted. You need to die. And my life in you is the only thing that God accepts. That life is the life of his son. That's why it says when we're joined to the, to the Lord, to Jesus, we actually become one spirit. We share his life. That's why we are members of his body. You know, we use these terms, Christ is the head of the church and we are his body. These are not just cliches. It is literally true. His life becomes, we become an extension of his existence. His life now lives in us, in you and in me. And this is why we become brothers and sisters, because if we're all joined to the Lord, we all become one spirit with each other. We share the same life, eternal life. You with me? The idea of the Trinity totally steals that from God's people. It gives us another comforter called God, the Holy Spirit. It's not the life of the Son. It's someone else. It's impossible to overcome sin and Satan like that. And this is why we have a miserable experience many times as believers where we try and fail and try and fail. And we either give up or just keep trying and failing. And we become these sad, long-faced Christians who know about victory over sin theoretically. But practically, it is a foreign thing to us. 
I have good news for you, brothers and sisters. Christ does not expect us to go and defeat Satan again and earn new victories over Satan. It's a done deal. He's accomplished that. All he wants is for you and me to accept his victory that he already overcame Satan. In, to accept his overcoming experience. That's what his life is all about. 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Do you want liberty? Do you want the real thing, or you want the make-believe one? Only the Lord can make can bring that liberty. The Lord Jesus Christ, He is that Spirit in our hearts, dwelling, abiding in our hearts, living out this victorious experience. That's what brings liberty. Jesus says, If the Son therefore make you free, shall be what? Free indeed. If anyone else makes you free, you might think you're free, but you're not free indeed. This is the problem we have today. A lot of, the, the idea of the Trinity says Christ has left us on earth. He's gone back to his father and he sent someone else to help us for the rest of the journey until we get to the kingdom. That is tragic. It's Christ alone who came to earth in order to be the one who can take us to the kingdom to help us every step of the way. He is that spirit. And sadly, all the glory and all the credit that should go to Christ because he's the only one that can enable us to do this now. Sadly, goes to this Someone else called God, the Holy Spirit. Because what Satan's done is separated the Spirit from God and Christ and made it into someone else. There is a correct understanding of the Spirit and there is an incorrect understanding. With the correct understanding, things make sense. And practically, it is a very empowering truth when you understand it for what it is. That Christ actually dwells in us. He is that Spirit and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And that's the only way when He comes we can be ready. Colossians 3, 4 says... When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall he also appear with him in glory. When Christ, who is what? Our life. Is Christ our life today? Is Christ your life? Is Christ my life today? How does Christ become our life? He sends us his very own life. So then now we are alive because of him. We're not alive because of the life we received from the first Adam. That's a dying life. We now possess the life of the last Adam. It's an eternal life. That's the only way you can be ready for when he appears in the clouds. Then we will also appear with him in glory. We will partake of his full glory then and be glorified physically. If we now have his spirit or his life dwelling and abiding in us, we will appear with him in glory. And so, brothers and sisters, I wanted to share this with you because on a practical level, this is where we need to examine a lot of what we talk about. You know, the Bible doctrines are not just theories that we just throw around. You know, some people say, well, you believe this about God and we believe this about God. Well, you see it this way, we see it that way. When we get to heaven, we'll find out which is the right one. A lot of people say that. We need to understand that these ideas, these concepts, they're not just theories, brothers and sisters. They have a practical relevance in our spiritual walk with the Lord. I'm sharing with you now the practical aspects of a correct understanding of the Spirit and of the Son and of the Father. This is what God designs for us. He wants to give us the very life of His Son. Not theoretically, not just in words, but He wants to change our existence. He wants to perform the spiritual miracle called the new birth where He gives us the life of His Son. That is what the Holy Spirit is. It's the life of Jesus Christ, the glorified, risen, and victorious life of the Son. That is the only way that you and I can be made righteous. This is why if it is anyone else, you cannot 
be made righteous. Good luck. Good luck. If you, if you are trying to accomplish righteousness while not possessing the life of the Son, all the best. You will never make it. Ever. And this is why we're saying the idea of God being a trinity is totally incompatible on a practical level. If we are logical and we follow what we believe logically to its conclusion, it is totally incompatible with the idea of righteousness by faith, which is the essence of the gospel. Only the life of the Son can accomplish that. Satan knows how powerful this is. That's why he came up with this confusing idea about God, to steal this truth from God's people. Because if God's people truly realized what that, what that meant and grasped a hold of it by faith, that's a big headache for Satan. He's been defeated and he knows that. And now he's in a big propaganda campaign to try and convince us that he still needs to be defeated again. And most Christians have fallen for that. Brothers and sisters, the life of Christ alone is the victory over sin and Satan. That is what the Holy Spirit is. So I pray that this makes sense. Are you understand what we talked about so far? It wasn't asking too much after lunch? Okay, that's good. I pray that we don't only just understand it, brothers and sisters. This is not just to try and argue and say, look, this idea is better than the Trinity. This is, a this is the, what the gospel is all about. The Trinity actually steals from us the essence and the practical aspects of the gospel. So I pray that if you've understood it, that we will take it to heart and that we will indeed, by faith, receive the life of the Son, that He might abide with us. He is not far off. He is closer than we ever thought. His desire is to live in your heart and mind. If you are blessed by this message, please share it with others. Be sure to subscribe to get notified of future episodes. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.